Episode 29 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, the New Zealand podcast that covers issues in philosophy, theology, politics, social issues, and so on. It's the podcast of the Beretta website, and I'm your host, Glenn Peoples. Now, some of you may still be waiting for me to get around to finishing the series called In Search of the Soul that deals with the mind-body problem, and I do promise I'll get around to that. In the meantime, however, just last week, in fact, I was out of town in Christchurch speaking on campus at the University of Canterbury. One of my talks was on abortion, and that talk makes up today's episode. Now, just a warning, you'll notice that the sound is cutting out throughout this talk intermittently. My apologies for that. I've since figured out why this was happening, but it's a little late now that it's already been recorded. Also, there was a Q&A session right after this talk, which isn't in the recording here. You couldn't hear the questions in the recording. And the discussions between me and the people asking the questions uh, was such that you you can't really hear it very well because it's a bit back and forth and it sounds quite strange because you only hear one side of the conversation. So at the blog where this podcast episode appears, I've written summaries of the questions that I was asked along with summaries of my answers to them. And so without further ado, here is my talk on Is Abortion Immoral and Should It Be Illegal? possibility of having a public debate on the proposition, abortion, is it immoral and should it be illegal? Now, unfortunately, we weren't able to pull enough strings in time to make that happen, but I thought, given the material that we've got prepared here, I still think there's quite a useful way to uh, make use of that here. It occurs to me, I mean, I've, I've sort of followed the abortion dispute in New Zealand for some years now, and it occurs to me that the majority of argumentation from those who oppose abortion has taken a couple of forms. On the one hand, you get a lot of very in-house approach to the issue where you're basically encouraging one another to get out there and make a difference and to change laws and to change minds, which is great. If, if, if that's a cause you believe in, then that's a great way to go about it. And on the other hand, we have what I think is, and I don't mean this in a bad way, a negative approach to the issue where, where the idea is to take arguments in favour of abortion rights and reply to them and say, no, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. Again, which is fine if you think they are wrong. What I want to do is offer a way that I think works reasonably well when presenting a positive case for the case against abortion, where you don't just say, look, the case for abortion isn't very good, but you say the case against abortion is very strong. That's the position I hold. So is abortion immoral and should it be illegal? My answer is yes on both counts. So what I'll be doing is explaining how I answer these two important questions. And I think it, it really is important in New Zealand at any rate. It may be less important in other places, but it's important here because of what's at stake, depending on what the right answer to these questions really is. Um, let me just throw some numbers out there to illustrate why it's so important here. The prevalence of abortion in New Zealand is quite phenomenal by world standards. 
Last year, in 2008, just under 18,000 abortions were carried out in this country. Now, if you think about it, with just over 64,000 live births in New Zealand for the exact same period, that's an incredible ratio of about one abortion for every three and a half live births, a ratio that is almost unheard of anywhere else in the world. So if abortion is as bad as some people say it is, then it's an issue of monumental importance in this country, just because of how common it is. So as I said, my position is quite simple. Yes, abortion is immoral. And secondly, because of the extent to which I think it is immoral, and because of the specific reasons why it is immoral, it ought to be not merely condemned as morally repugnant, but prohibited uh, as illegal. Now these are two separate claims, and I'm going to address each of them in turn. So the first one is, is abortion immoral? I think it is, and I'm going to give you two lines of argument why I think abortion is immoral and why you think, should think abortion is immoral and how you can hopefully persuade others that abortion is in fact immoral. Now these two lines of argument I've called firstly the traceback argument and secondly the argument from the future. Now the first of these arguments is designed to show that abortion is immoral because the subject of abortion, namely a human fetus that is an unborn human being from eight weeks onwards, is identical with a living human person. Not everyone accepts that, and so this argument is designed to show them that this is the case. And the second argument defends the claim that even if you don't believe that, even if a fetus is not a human person, it would still be immoral because of what we take away when we destroy it. So let's start with the first of those two arguments, the trace-back argument. It's sometimes claimed by advocates of abortion rights that abortion is not as immoral as anti-abortion advocates say, because of the status of the unborn child. Because the thing that is destroyed in abortion, namely a fetus or an embryo, if you do it particularly early, is either not a human being in a proper sense or not a human person. The terminology isn't always the same, but the idea is the same. It's that this thing that we're destroying in abortion lacks the right kind of status to make it valuable, to make it worthy of protection. And so that's why abortion is okay. That's one type of argument. If this thing, this entity, had the right kind of status, then abortion would be wrong, but it doesn't. Now, whatever you might currently think about the status of the unborn child, I think that all of you at least agree on this. You are a human person worthy of protection, and hopefully you confer that same status upon me. I am a human person worthy of protection. Please say you would. That's not controversial. I don't think it's very controversial. Now, I'm sure you'll find... Some people who don't think that we are you know, each worthy of protection, but generally speaking, we all accept that we are worthy of that kind of protection. What's also not controversial, although it is slightly more technical, is what's known as the principle of identity. It's a logical concept. The most basic of all philosophical, of all logical laws, is called the law of identity. And it can most sim simply be summed up like this. Necessarily, A equals A. In other words, everything is identical to itself. It's a very simple idea. Everything is identical with itself. Another way of referring to this most basic con concept is with the term numerical identity, because there's more than one kind of identity. So if you're counting something, let's say I'm counting this and only this pen, I should only count one thing. If I count any other number of things, I've got it wrong. And that's because of the concept of identity. Let's call this time, what is it? 
7.46 and something seconds. Let's call that time T1. So this is the pen at T1. Now it's the pen at T2, which I'm just using as a label to refer to the time that is right when I said that. Now it's the pen at T3, but it's always the pen, right? The identity doesn't change. Now if I snapped this thing off the pen, it would still be the pen. It's just that some of the qualities would change. And that's because numerical identity is not the same as qualitative identity. A number of qualities could change about this pen. I could melt it down and put it into a cup, but it would still be the same object. It would just be have very different qualities because of what I've done to it. But numerically, it would be identical with itself the whole time, and numerically, this melted down thing in the cup would be identical with the pen that I was holding in my hand at T1. Right, so that's the idea of numerical identity. Necessarily, A equals A. But once we understand what numerical identity is, another claim becomes uncontroversial. And that is, you are numerically identical with a fetus that once lived. That fetus was you at T1, or T whatever you want to call it. Obviously, you're not qualitatively identical with a fetus. Obviously. You're also not qualitatively identical with, with an infant or a toddler or an adolescent, just looking around being careful, maybe. Well, maybe some of you are. You're also not qualitatively identical with someone who's older than you, like you in 10, 20 years' time. But you are numerically identical with all of those things because if I hold up a, a photo of me as a fetus at, say, 10 weeks gestation, and I hold up a fetus of me last week, and I say, how many entities am I showing you? The correct answer is one. And that is true, uncontroversially so, because of the uh, principle of identity. If, if I said, how many different qualities am I showing? You'd say two. You know, this thing has all these qualities, and that thing has all those qualities. But if I said, how many numerical objects am I holding up? One. One is the answer. So this way of thinking about our history avoids the rather absurd position that sometimes comes up in the abortion dispute. Because if you say, well, you know, you're killing people when you kill unborn babies, and someone says, well, that's ridiculous. If that were so, then to destroy an ova or a sperm would be to kill a person. Well, not so, according to the principle of identity, because you were never numerically identical with either an ova or a sperm. That was never the case. So this avoids that objection. Okay, because you've got a sperm, you've got an ova, but then you've got a numerically distinct entity, namely the zygote. That's after fertilization. And the two prior objects, two of them no longer exist. So there is no numerical identity there. You, at your current stage in life, are a stage of embryo at T1. You are that embryo at T47, depending on how we divide our units of time up. That is numerically the same object. We've also avoided certain other objections, one in particular, because some people say, well, you shouldn't kill living humans. And then someone will say, well, really? Using that logic, you couldn't destroy human cancer cells because they're living and they're human, but they're not numerically identical with a human being. They never were, they never will be. Just like if I cut a piece of hair off, well, no, it would be dead. But the, <laughs> the hair root that's still in my head is alive, but it is not numerically identical with any human person. So you can't just say, well, it's silly to say that you shouldn't kill a human being because, uh, because these things are human and alive. Now, I'm only talking about what is numerically identical with a human being. 
the numerical entity that is you was once a toddler and was once an infant and was once a fetus. But if this is so, then abortion destroys something that is identical with a human being. And so the first argument goes like this. It is prima facie immoral to kill a human being. Abortion kills a human being, as shown via the traceback argument, which draws on the principle of identity. If it's identical with a human being, it is a human being. Three, therefore abortion is prima facie immoral. Notice that term prima facie. I've said that it is only prima facie wrong to kill, kill a human being. What that means is it's wrong on the face of it. It's wrong at first glance. It doesn't mean it's always wrong. And I don't think it is always wrong to kill a human being. I never think it's good or pleasant or what we want, but it isn't always wrong. Um, in law, for example, if you kill in self-defense and it is shown to be self-defense, that's, that's, that's actually an excuse. You can be acquitted on the grounds of self-defense. You've done nothing wrong, nothing worthy of being treated like a criminal. Um, I don't like war, but I think all of us would accept that there may be times when it is necessary to go to war. That would be an example, too, of when killing may be something that we would permit, even though we don't want it. So I've only said prima facie wrong. It might not always be wrong. However, where we can identify a prima facie moral duty, then we should carry out that duty unless we have been shown that there is a significant or there are significant moral factors that weigh against our moral duties, our normal prima facie moral duties. In other words... Because there is a prima facie duty not to carry out abortion, it is up to those who believe that abortion is morally acceptable to give good reasons for thinking that there are important factors that weigh against carrying out our normal moral duty not to kill human beings when it comes to abortion. And unless they do that, we have a moral duty not to carry out abortion. The second argument that I refer to is what I've called the argument from the future. Not an argument that comes from the future, it's an argument that appeals to future states of affairs and then uses that appeal for the conclusion that abortion is wrong. So I want to outline this argument. In presenting this second argument, you can actually forget the first argument. It doesn't matter what you think of the status of the unborn child when it comes to considering this argument against abortion. Forgetting the status of the unborn child, I want to simply pose this question. Why is killing wrong? Generally speaking, why is killing wrong? What is it that makes it wrong to kill me or you or any other human person? And then I'm going to say, okay, let's look at that wrong-making property, that thing that makes it wrong, and let's ask if that property exists in the case of abortion. Because if it does, then we've duplicated the moral wrongness. All right, so what is it? What is it that makes it morally wrong to kill people? I think a fairly widely accepted answer, and a correct answer, one that most people would grant as plausible, is that killing one of us would be wrong because it takes away our life. But we don't mean that in the simple sense that it sounds. We mean that in a slightly more qualified sense. Obviously, it doesn't take away our past life. That's already happened. It's also quite difficult to think in terms of taking away our present life because that's, that's here and gone in the flash. You can't really measure it. It takes away our future life. Think, for example, of the death penalty. We don't have it here, but some places do. Let's choose the example of a firing squad. The shooting is over in a couple of seconds. That's not the punishment. Okay. The punishment is not merely the sensation of being shot through the chest. 
the punishment is that the executed person no longer has a future of human experiences. That's what's so terrible about being executed. That's why people are afraid of it. Okay. But not only is it a future, it's the future life of a human person. I don't think much about, I know some people are vegetarians, but I'm not a vegetarian, and I don't think very much about killing vegetables or, or trampling on grass or uprooting weeds or anything like that. When we kill a human being, we take away what ethicist Don Marquis calls a future like mind. It's not the future of a blade of grass, it's not the future as a potato, it's a future like mind, and that's what makes it important. He says, and I quote, some parts of my future are not valued by me now, but will come to be valued by me as I grow older, and as my values and capacities change. When I am killed, I am deprived both of what I am now, oh, sorry, both of what I now value, which would have been part of my future personal life, but also what I would come to value. Therefore, when I die, I am deprived of all the value of my future. Inflicting this loss upon me is ultimately what makes killing me wrong. Now, I think there's something clearly plausible about this, and I think it's a fairly intuitive thing that most people would see. A man being led to the firing squad, the example I used earlier, is not primarily afraid that it's really going to hurt, although it probably will. A young woman who has just been told that she has three months to live because of breast cancer, now she might fear the pain that cancer will cause, she probably will. That's not the main fear though, that's not the main issue for her. She's worried primarily because her future is about to be taken away from her. She's about to lose it. Moreover, killing a three-year-old does not merely take away his ability to draw cute little pictures with crayons and play on the sandbox, although it takes that away, of course, and that's a bad thing. It takes away his ability to develop. It takes away what could otherwise be a fulfilling future as a growing child and then an adult. And so the grieving parents of this killed child could quite rightly, rightly say to the killer, well, firstly, they could say, you've taken away our baby. That's true, and that's terrible. But they could also say, you've taken away his future. Everything that he might have become, you've just destroyed. And that's plainly a valid complaint. So there we are. Killing is wrong because it takes away a future like mine. It might be wrong for other reasons too, but that feature is enough to make it wrong. I want you to notice several things about this particular view of what makes killing wrong. Firstly, it's got nothing to do with whether or not something is biologically human. That's actually not part of this reason at all. Consider the possibility that in centuries to come, humanity explores other galaxies and discovers other intelligent life out there. Aliens, who, far from being brute animals, seem intelligent beings in much the same way that you are an intelligent being. If the only thing that makes killing wrong is that something is a human person, then we can just kill these creatures and there's nothing wrong with it. But that, that seems kind of wrong. That seems kind of obviously wrong to me. If it is wrong to take away a future like mine, then biological or genetic technicalities like this don't matter. Because killing these alien beings would be taking away a future like mine or like yours, and therefore it would be wrong. In addition to such beings, this principle opens up the possibility of considering the morality of killing certain animal species here on Earth now. I'm not about to offer any type of cataloguing of animals that can be killed and those that can't. But what I would say is, and I think ethicists are becoming more and more aware of this in our age, the future-like mind principle can clearly play a part in determining the morality of 
of killing animals. Uh, killing the great apes is an obvious case. To the, sense, to the extent that they too can enjoy and experience life and have intelligence, it becomes wrong to kill them. And I think that's clearly plausible. Secondly, this theory of the immorality of killing provides compelling moral reasons for not killing very young children who may lack many of the psychological features that some people believe are necessary for full personhood. There are those who argue that in order to be a human person, you must have self-awareness, you must have rationality, you must be able to reflect on your past or your future, or any other list of psychological traits rather than simply physical or visible characteristics. This theory of what is wrong with killing, I think, provides ethicists like that with a compelling reason not to kill babies or young children who don't have those things. And because I think we all share a basic moral intuition that killing a two-year-old is wrong, this theory has an advantage when it comes to considering ethical factors in what make killing wrong. Thirdly, I want you to note that this principle presents us with what philosophers might call a sufficient condition for the immorality of, of killing. Philosophers talk about sufficient conditions and necessary conditions. This principle is merely that if something takes away a future like mine, then it is morally wrong. It doesn't mean that there's no other way for killing to be wrong. It doesn't mean that unless a form of killing takes away a future like mine, then there's nothing wrong with it and we can just go ahead. It has nothing to say about that. As such, this particular theory of what makes killing wrong has nothing to say about other difficult cases like euthanasia, where the person involved may not have a future like mine. If that is wrong, and it may be, then it will have to be wrong for other reasons, but not this one. If this property, the property of taking away a future like mine, is enough to make an action wrong, then the critical question becomes this. Does abortion take away a future like mine? And I think the answer is that it clearly does. And I think it obviously and indisputably does. Regardless of what the fetus is right now, it clearly has a future of experiences that are relevantly like yours or like mine. In fact, just over 33 years ago, there was a fetus that had a future exactly like mine. It is mine. And to destroy that fetus would have been to take away a future that is now my life. And still, hopefully, my future. A fetus might not now value the future that lies ahead of it. I'm quite certain that a fetus does not now value the future that lies ahead of it, but that is not, a, not relevant here. It may be that right now I don't even know what my future will be. In fact, I don't know what my future is. So I can't actually value that future because I don't even know what it is, just like a fetus doesn't know what it is, not even capable of knowing what it is. That hardly makes it acceptable to kill me just because I don't know what my future is and therefore I don't value it. So, if this property is sufficient to make an action immoral, it follows deductively, that is logically, that abortion is immoral for the same reason that killing you or me would be immoral. Now, you may quibble with this on the grounds that children who are aborted are often aborted because of serious defects. So they don't actually have a future like mine anyway. So, Glenn, your argument simply doesn't work. But this objection is simply out of touch with the facts, especially the facts in New Zealand. As has routinely been the case in New Zealand, over 98% of all abortions are carried out 
and this was the case in 2008 and previous years, are carried out on the notoriously dubious grounds that the continuation of the pregnancy itself constituted a serious threat to the mental health of the mother. A grounds, by the way, that the Abortion Supervisory Committee frankly admits is false. Not because of crimes committed against the mother, not because of the mother's existing medical condition, and not because of any defect in the unborn child. So to raise that objection is not actually particularly relevant in this country. I don't think for a minute, I want to be very careful when I say this, I don't think, please don't hear me as saying, that it is moral or humane to say that people with Down syndrome or spina bifida have no future of value, and so their future can be disposed of without wrongdoing. I am not saying that, and I do not believe that. But if, if, and I'm not saying proponents of abortion believe that either, but if they did, then they would still be faced with the prospect of having to grant that virtually all abortions that take place in New Zealand are immoral. Consequently, even if you don't think that the unborn child is a human person, you have good grounds to think that it is, abortion is seriously immoral for the same kinds of reasons that killing me or you or any other human being would be immoral. So the argument from the future is as follows. It is prima facie, again, only prima facie wrong to take away a future like mine. Secondly, abortion takes away a future like mine. Thirdly, therefore, abortion is prima facie immoral. But that doesn't answer all the questions tonight. There's still one major third one. Even if abortion is immoral, Illegal? Isn't that going a bit far? The fact that something is morally wrong does not automatically mean that it should be illegal. That would be a horrendous way to view the role of law. Uh, it would be a totalitarian way of viewing the government's role, where the government exists to force people to be moral in every way possible. I don't want that. You might think that this is none of the government's business. Perhaps you see why the argument for the immorality of abortion work, but you're happy to say, well... Because of the strength of these arguments, I'm personally opposed, but I'm pro-choice. And people do say that. Personally opposed, pro-choice. Or I'm personally opposed, but pro-choice, and you don't like abortion, and don't have one. But don't you go forcing your morality down my throat, and don't you go imposing your standards upon us. All right? And you hear this from time to time. I hear it from time to time. Here's what I think is wrong with that way of thinking. When someone says, I'm personally opposed, that means that they themselves think abortion is wrong. So, the question to ask is, well, why do you think abortion is wrong? If they grant, they might not, but if they grant that abortion is wrong for reasons like those that I've given today, then they will reply by saying, well, I'm opposed to abortion because it destroys a human being and takes away a future like mine. Now, I agree that the government shouldn't enforce every moral principle, like, say, exercise good manners. You know, some things are none of the government's business, but there clearly is a bare minimum that the government must enforce. Among the most fundamental of these is what we have come to call human rights. In the 1948 United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, there's a list of some of these that we take for granted in most of our social and legal decision-making. For example... Everyone has the right to life, liberty, and the security of person. Or, all are equal before the law and are entitled without any discrimination to equal protection of the law. It uses the word, you know, all, uses the word someone. 
Now, because I've argued that an unborn child is identical to a someone, and since when they lose their future, this loss is as great as the loss of anyone else, it follows that saying that it's all right to destroy them simply denies these articles of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I put it to you that to reject these fundamental moral and legal principles undermines so much of civilised society that our society scarcely becomes worthy of that description at all, civilised. I've got no problem with people saying, if you don't like chocolate ice cream, don't eat it. That's fine. I even don't have a problem with people saying, don't like my church, don't come to it. Okay, I won't. But if someone says to me, I'm personally opposed to riding roughshod over human rights and killing people, but if you want to do it, go right ahead, then I humbly suggest that the speaker just doesn't understand what it means to refer to human rights at all. If abortion does what I have argued that it does, then it warrants not merely our moral condemnation, but prohibition in law. So, in closing this first section, it's fairly common... Yeah, I think it is fairly common in New Zealand, but quite mistaken, to assume, uh, if you're a proponent of abortion rights, not universal, but common, to assume that opposition to abortion is nothing more, or often nothing more, than the result of religious dogmatism, appealing to privately held religious convictions that have no basis in reasons that society should take seriously. If this is what you came to this event thinking, then I hope at very least... I've given you reasons to reconsider this quite unfair assessment of the case against abortion. Now, in summing up, I want you to notice that these two arguments, the traceback argument and the argument from the future, although dealing with similar subject matter, are quite independent. The success of one is not dependent on the other. You might not buy the traceback argument, although I think you should, and you'd need some fairly compelling reasons not to, but you might not. And if you don't, then the argument from the future still stands as a completely separate reason to think that abortion is wrong and should be illegal. I also don't pretend that the reasons that I have given will cover absolutely every conceivable scenario. I think that many moral and legal prohibitions have understandable exceptions. Stealing is wrong. You'd be hard-pressed to find fault with a person who stole food because she was starving to death, for example, an obvious case. I also want you to notice that what I've presented is not a dogmatic claim that all abortions or all killing is always wrong everywhere. I haven't said that, and I do not believe that. What I've given are arguments for the prima facie judgment that abortion is wrong. I have allowed for the possibility that there may be times, I haven't said there are, but I've allowed for the possibility that there may be times when our normal moral duty gives way to greater duties or rights. But given the strength of these two arguments that I have given, it is up to the defenders of abortion rights to provide clear reasons in any given case for thinking that abortion constitutes a striking exception to our everyday moral duties. So in short, I've given you reasons for accepting three things. Abortion is immoral because it involves destroying things that are identical with living persons in the sense that you and I are identical with living persons. Secondly, I've argued that quite apart from disagreements about the status of unborn children, setting that aside, killing them is still wrong because the act of doing so possesses the very same features that make killing me wrong. And killing me is very wrong. 
namely that it takes away their future as human persons, a future like mine, a future that has intrinsic value. Thirdly, I've argued that if the reasons that I have given for thinking that abortion is immoral carry any weight at all, they show not just that abortion is immoral, but that it should in fact be restricted in society. It should be illegal. This is because the reasons that abortion is immoral are not just reasons for thinking that abortion should be disliked or that it is religiously taboo, unpleasant or difficult, even though it may be all of those things. There are reasons for thinking that abortion is unjust. It violates principles that, when other actions violate them, we all recognize that injustice is being done, like killing me. We accept that in those cases, a line has been crossed that warrants the action being prohibited, not merely as a matter of the private moral whims of a person or a group or a church or what have you, but as a matter of social justice. In the second part of the presentation, when you have a debate, you have two people offer the presentation in favour of their position, and then they basically object to each other, and then you have the opportunity to respond to those objections. Here in New Zealand, there are some objections that I think are more common than any other. And so what I'm going to do is address those briefly now. Obviously, given that our abortion rate is so incredibly high, in spite of readily available sex education and in spite of readily available contraceptive alternatives to abortion, and given the way that some people in this country so passionately advocate for abortion rights, it's clear that not everyone shares the stance that I've offered here. That's not a secret. A number of people that I've spoken to who do support abortion rights are quite frank in their admission. This is a minority, I believe, so please don't think that I'm trying to portray the abortion rights lobby this way. But a number of people who I have spoken to are frank in their admission that they actually don't support abortion on principled grounds. Not all of them, but some of them. Some of them are quite happy to tell me, Glenn, I just don't care. That might sound selfish, Glenn, but that's my life, and I don't want to give birth because it would inconvenience me. I don't intend to address that because I actually... Well, it's not an objection, and it doesn't present itself as an objection. It's just an unfortunate reality. But there are real objections out there. I assume that anyone who speaks up on the abortion issue is likely to have encountered them. So I'm going to survey the most common ones here. One I've, I've kind of touched on, but I want to say a little bit more. And that's the objection from imposing morality. You heard it earlier. Don't like abortion? Don't abort. But don't impose your morality on me. The thought here is that there's nothing wrong with you forming your own moral judgment on the issue of abortion and living in accordance with it, more power to you, but that it's wrong to impose that judgment into the lives of other people and to expect them to live as they believed, as though they believed as you do. Uh, actually, I think the most competent defenders of abortion rights see right through this one. George Scher, who is the professor of philosophy at Rice University, who himself defends abortion rights, he realises the failure of this argument, and he says, and I quote, it's often maintained that those who oppose abortion are acting properly when they themselves refuse to abort, but not when they attempt to prevent others from aborting as well. When they try to ban all abortions, so the argument goes, then they overstep the bounds of tolerance by imposing their moral views upon others. But the principle which underlies this argument, that all morality, that, sorry, that all morally controversial decisions should be matters of individual conscience, is plainly untenable. Even the most ardent proponents of tolerance would deny that wife-beating, slavery, or murder are matters of individual conscience. 
and their position would hardly be affected by the discovery that some, or even most other persons, consider such practices to be morally permissible. Now, I think that George Scher is just obviously correct. If I wanted to keep dark-skinned people as slaves and rejected all your moral content, I don't. But if I did, just, yeah, I don't. And if I rejected all your moral condemnation by saying, look, mister, I'm not asking you to keep a house nigger. I'm just asking you to respect my right to do so. If you don't want to, don't. But don't you go imposing your morality on me. Stay out of my affairs. I doubt that anyone would take my complaints seriously. The very reason that we think this behavior is wrong in the first place is that it destroys the well-being and the future of other people. That's what's wrong with slavery. Which is precisely the kind of scenario where we ought to intervene and stop that kind of behavior. To say that we shouldn't impose our beliefs about abortion onto other people just assumes that those particular beliefs are false. And that in fact abortion is not a matter of social justice because it does not destroy a human being or take away a future of value like mine. Therefore, before this argument can succeed, before you can even begin to talk about imposing morality on people, you need to first address the two issues that I've presented against abortion, namely the traceback argument and the argument from the future. This is really just another version of the slogan that says, personally opposed, pro-choice. I'm starting with what I consider to be the less serious objections and then moving on to some more weighty objections. Making abortion criminal won't stop it. I've had some dealings with the Abortion Supervisory Committee in New Zealand and closely followed their reports over the last 15 years or so. This is an argument that I think is most common with them. And so it's a particularly relevant one to address in New Zealand. I've frequently heard the claim that making abortion illegal will not stop it. In their reports to Parliament, they directly say, making abortion illegal will not stop it. That's what they say. Therefore, we shouldn't make it illegal. That's what the argument says. The argument in its most frequently heard form at the moment in the media, because you know, there's, a, there's very high-profile things going on in the media at the moment with, you know, with the pro-life group here in Christchurch and the court action being taken, and the response in the media, that's at the forefront of it. You know, we all know that making abortion illegal doesn't stop it. And this response takes the form of saying, if we make abortion illegal in New Zealand, then women will simply be forced overseas to Australia to have abortions. Here's the thing. First and foremost, the claim, to some extent, is false. It has been made for decades, this claim. It gained prominence in particular in 1985 in a report by Janet Skeets to the Abortion Supervisory Committee. In it, she admitted that in response to the 1977 introduction of what's called the CSA, or the Contraception, Sterilization and Abortion Act, which imposed some restrictions on abortion practice, abortion rates dropped. In her report, she claimed that this was fully explained by what she called trans-Tasman traffic. Women, she said, were simply going to Australia and having their abortions there. Were it not for this occurring, she says, abortion rates would have continued to rise in exactly the same way. She noted a rise in the number of childbearing age women who travelled to Australia for less than a week in 1978. She concluded that they must have gone there to have an abortion, and she claimed further that the actual number of live births in New Zealand did not increase. Therefore, you can see all these women starting to go overseas for just a week. 
birth rates didn't increase, so guess what? They're having the abortions over. Now, it's not ridiculous. You know, it's, it's, it's a plausible thing to conclude. I don't want to rubbish it. It's, it's not completely unsensible, but I don't think she went far enough. Because as Marilyn Pryor then pointed out in the year immediately following, in 1986, this research was fundamentally flawed, and it missed out some crucial facts, as well as making some important factual errors. Her report showed that even if we simply accept the claim, every woman of childbearing age travelling to Australia for less than a week in 78 had an abortion in Australia. I don't think we should accept that, but let's say we did. Even if we accept that, and we include those numbers into the national abortion totals, it still shows a decrease, and an obvious one. So that's simply a mistake. She got her numbers wrong. In other words, abortion numbers in total did decrease, even if some women did go overseas to get an abortion. I'm sure that took place. What's more, there was another factual error. We can further prove this by noting that the claim that live births did not increase from 78 to 79, 79 is when a lot of those babies were being born, in fact they did. There was an increase by over 1,200. So the professionals who make this claim, this was pointed out to the Abortion Supervisory Committee in 86, so they are aware of it, they have been aware of it since 1986. Okay? So the professionals who make this claim repeatedly know that it is not true. They know full well that the claim is false, but they make it anyway. There is a word for it. I won't say it. You can think it if you want. Secondly, this argument for abortion rights is flawed on moral grounds as well. And I actually think this is the more important objection. It's useful to be able to point out that the facts are wrong. That's useful. But I think the more important argument is the moral argument here. It suggests that if people are able to do something overseas when it is illegal here, then we should make it easier for them to do it here. Really. Because if I'm correctly informed, there are some countries where perverts can hire children as prostitutes. Given that this is so, having laws in New Zealand against sexual connections with children, they won't stop pedophilia. And they don't stop pedophilia, do they? Unfortunately. The question is, is that really relevant when we decide what our laws should be? Just imagine a government that said, we think, we think that abortion is fundamentally immoral because it takes away a human life and destroys a human future. We think that it is unjust and violates important human rights, rights because, however, other countries allow it, and our citizens can go to those countries to have abortions, we will allow it. I wouldn't vote for them. The argument has nothing to do with principle and everything to do with convenience. It essentially boils down to this. If we make abortion illegal here, then women who want an abortion here will be put out. If the arguments that I have given are good ones, then my response is good. If abortion is what I have argued that it is, then people who want an abortion in New Zealand should be put out by the law, just like anyone else who wants to commit crimes that undermine human rights. This is also a very common objection. I've heard it numerous times, I'm sure you have as well. And it's the objection from illegal abortion and consequently maternal death. The argument is, if we make abortion illegal, then women will have illegal abortions, and many of them, sadly, will die as a result. Okay? In a way, this is a bit of a no-brainer, because if abortion is made illegal, then of course those who have abortions will be doing so illegally. That's not the point. Obviously, the concern surrounds the consequences of that. Okay, so the fear is around the possibility of women dying from unsafe 
illegal abortions. If we make abortion illegal, then they'll seek out, who knows, unregulated, unstandardized, possibly dangerous context in which to have an abortion carried out. Okay? The first way to respond to this argument is to appeal to the facts, which, as with the previous argument, do not support the objection very well. I'll start with an overseas example, and then I'll bring it home a bit more. There's an organization called the National Association for Repeal of Abortion Law, a very vocal pro-choice group in the United States of America, uh, founded by a man, a doctor actually, named Bernard Nathanson. He founded the group. He was an abortionist. He's performed himself personally thousands of abortions. He had some pretty frank things. He no longer is. He no longer believes that abortions are just or morally acceptable. And this is what he had to say about some of the uh, material and some of the arguments that were used for abortion rights when they appealed to the dangers of illegal abortions. He says, and by the way, when he refers to deaths here, he's talking about the deaths of women who go for unsafe abortions. He said, how many deaths were we talking about when abortion was illegal? In NARAL, that's short for the National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Law, we generally emphasised the drama of the individual case, not the mass statistics, but when we spoke of the latter, it was always... 5,000 to 10,000 a year. I confess, I knew that the figures were totally false. But in the morality of our revolution, it was a useful figure, widely accepted, so why go out of the way to correct it with honest statistics? Well, that's overseas. Maybe New Zealand's different. What about here in New Zealand? Again, the facts are very revealing. Back in 1998, I was researching the issue of maternal death due to illegal abortion here in New Zealand because I'd just read a report to Parliament by the Abortion Supervisory Committee which claimed that making abortion illegal does not stop it because women will seek out illegal abortions that result in maternal death. That was a key argument they used. So I did the obvious thing. I got on the phone and I called them. My query was, I thought at the time, very simple. Where can I? I didn't even expect that they would have the information, but I, I thought at least they must have access to it. I mean, they're using it. Surely they've got, they know where it is. I called them and I said... Where can I obtain statistics on the number of maternal deaths due to illegal abortions in New Zealand prior to legalisation? There was a pause, and the man on the other end of the phone laughed. And he said, what? There are no such statistics. Who reports illegal abortions? Okay. A 1977 Royal Commission of Inquiry likewise noted that, and I quote, after a careful study of all available statistics, surveys, and methods of assessment, the actual number of illegal abortions prior to legalisation was impossible to accurately assess. However, the available information on maternal death due to illegal abortion provided a figure of how many women were dying each year because of illegal abortion. So they didn't know how many illegal abortions were occurring, but they did have a figure on the number of women who were dying as a result of them. Would anyone like to hazard a guess at that number per year? 500? One woman per year. Now, I don't, I'm not trivialising that or undermining it. It's very sad when a woman dies because of something like that. We don't want that to happen. But just bear that in mind the next time you hear someone say, well, look, what you want to do is force scores of women to back alleys to be murdered by, well, not murdered, but killed by back alley butchers or unprofessional abortionists. No, you don't. That was never the case, even when, that, when, even when abortion was largely illegal here in the country. One woman per year. So the first thing to say about the concern over maternal death is that it is something of a smokescreen. When the concern is expressed, it is never expressed with any statistics attached. Because if it were, it would lose its rhetorical power dramatically. 
second thing to notice is this. And again, even though the factual issues are important, I think the moral issues are more important. This objection does not address the central moral issues involved. It falls short. Let's say, let's imagine that the impression given by some professionals who promote abortion rights were correct. Let's imagine that they were. Let's say that not one, but 100, 100 times more, 100 women die every year from illegal abortions. Then let's add into the mix the fact that if abortion were made legal, there would be, again, there are, there are, there are way more than this, but let's say there would be 10,000 abortions every year. Okay? Neither of those figures are correct, but you get the idea. If abortion is what I have argued that it is, and it destroys a human being and takes away a human future, as I've argued that it does, and is therefore immoral, how is it defensible to permit 10,000 of them to take place in order to prevent the deaths of 100 other people and the loss of their future? The second thing to note is this. Every single, I think, illegal activity is made more dangerous by the fact that it is illegal. Think of the poor terrorists who have to make bombs. Why not show them some compassion? It's not, and this is actually a paragraph lifted out of the Abortion Supervisory Committee report, and I've switched terrorists for women seeking abortion. So it would read as follows. Why not show terrorists compassion? It is not an easy choice to make and plant bombs. Terrorists do not like it. What's more, they place themselves at great risk. I have had to change some of the wording so it makes sense. Making homemade bombs in back rooms in unsafe conditions, potentially harming themselves. If terrorism is not made safe and legal, we will simply have illegal terrorism. As we know all too well, this is associated with unplanned explosions and terrorist death. Now, you're laughing because it's ridiculous. And you're right, it is ridiculous. But why is it ridiculous? Well, it's ridiculous because the idea of safe terrorism is an absurd one. It's an oxymoron. If terrorism kills people when it succeeds, then there is no such thing as safe terrorism. You don't say, let's let people do it safely. No, because if they do it safely, they're going to kill lots of people. And that's not safe. So this argument for legal abortion can only succeed if one first shows that abortion does not do this. Now, I've offered two arguments, again, for why abortion should be seen as immoral, because it does do this. Once we've shown that, in fact, abortion does not do what I've claimed it does, then sure, let's talk about making it safe and widely available. Same as having your appendix out. I have no moral objection to people having their appendix out. In fact, I think sometimes you may have a moral objection to take people's appendixes out, because otherwise they'll die. Uh, I want that to be widely available. I want it to, you know, to, to be not prohibitively priced or out of people's reach or anything like that. But that's only because I don't think that it kills anyone. If I thought that it killed anyone, I wouldn't think that. So let's first show that abortion is morally acceptable. Then we'll talk about making it more widely available and safer. At this juncture, I, and I don't do this a lot, but I have to agree with pro-abortion rights feminist philosopher Marianne Warren, where she had, frankly admits, and I quote, the fact that restricting access to abortion has tragic side effects does not in itself show that the restrictions are unjustified, since murder is wrong regardless of the consequences of prohibiting it. I wish we had that kind of clarity of thought from those in New Zealand, who I have encountered anyway, who promote liberal abortion laws. What we are seeing instead in the arguments for abortion rights in New Zealand is actually an informal logical fallacy called begging the question. Now, begging the question occurs when 
somebody uses an argument that just takes for granted one of the very things that is in dispute. For example, if, if a priest came in here and said, belief in God is universal. We said, well, how do you know that? He said, well, because everyone believes in God. Well, wait a minute, you're trying to convince us of that. You can't appeal to it. Uh, likewise, these are arguments in the abortion dispute that are taking for granted the fact that there is no moral objection to be addressed in the abortion dispute. So let's just talk about the practicalities of making it more widely available. That is no way to respond to those who think abortion is immoral and unjust. The objections to, to abortion surround the status of what it kills and also the reasons why killing that entity are wrong. The responses, however, the responses that I've looked at today just assume that this objection is wrong and then they move on to argue about why abortion should be made more readily available and safer. But they don't make any actual effort to show that the objections fail. It's not that no one in the world makes the effort to show that they fail. It's just that professional proponents of abortion rights in New Zealand don't make any effort to show that the objections fail. Now, I don't pretend for a moment, I've only been here for, gosh, I've been here that long. I don't pretend that I have exhausted all the objections to my position. I haven't. I've only been standing here for just under an hour. Maybe there are a few out there, and, and I welcome those. But having followed the abortion issue in this country quite closely for a while, I can definitely say that the objections I have addressed are the most common here. They are the most common that you are likely to hear from any professional proponent of abortion rights here and from those who financially gain from the abortion industry in this country. Of all the responses that I have heard from that group, it occurs to me that they deliberately avoid that which is central to the objection to abortion in the first place. So I submit that the two reasons that I have given for opposing abortion rights have gone more or less unopposed, in spite of all the time that abortion providers and defenders have had to address them. Surely then the time has come to act on them and to make abortion illegal. However, something very curious about making that claim in New Zealand is that abortion already is illegal. A lot of people don't realise that. Abortion is, in fact, a crime. It's in the Crimes Act in New Zealand law. It is prima facie forbidden precisely because of the reasons that I have given. It is illegal because, and you can check the Royal Commission of Inquiry in the way that they explain the law is supposed to work, it is illegal precisely because the law was intended to protect the unborn child. The reason that there are so many abortions in this country is because abortionists and certi certifying consultants are willing to break the law. And, and, and it's not like I'm slandering them or talking behind their back. They know it and they admit it. The Abortion Supervisory Committee every year admits it. What they say to Parliament time after time is, what we need to do is change the law, make it more liberal so that the law lines up with current practice. That can only, be, that can only even be an issue if most abortions that take place now are not in conformity with the law. Why else would you want to change the law to line up with current practice? So it's not like I'm slandering anyone. This is common knowledge. Nearly all abortions carried out in New Zealand are carried out on the grounds that the pregnancy would pose a serious threat to the mental health of the mother. This is simply because, unlike some other grounds for abortion, no evidence is required for the claim. And so it is easy to appeal to this, even when all parties involved believe that it is not the case. In the late 1990s, when I was involved in a group called Soul, Students Organised to Uphold Life in the Waikato region, we were in contact with young women visiting family planning clinics, or the main one in, in Hamilton, who went in there to see a consultant for an abortion and 
who told them that they were seeking an abortion, you'd be amazed at the extent to which health professionals were prepared to lie to make those abortions happen. They literally accepted claims like, I get pimples when I am pregnant. That qualified for a serious danger to mental health. I don't currently have enough seatbelts in my car. That qualified for a certifying consultant to recommend this woman for an abortion on the grounds of serious danger to mental health. You get the idea. What's more, as I said, the Abortion Supervisory Committee, the regulatory body that was set up to make sure that these folk did not break the law, are continually defending this breaking of the law and claiming that because all these crimes are being committed, we should just have more liberal laws so less things count as crimes. Fewer things count as crimes. I suggest then that while some change of law might be helpful, what would be even more helpful is for existing laws to simply be enforced. And that for certifying consultants who recommend approval for abortion where legal grounds are not met, to simply be, a prosecu to be prosecuted as the law currently requires. And on that note, I more than welcome your comments, questions, criticisms, or anything else that doesn't involve bodily violence.